With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is the ER. This week, the deadly al-Qaeda attack against Americans, three years before 9-11. 20 years ago last month, two simultaneous bomb attacks against U.S. embassies in Africa. One in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, the other in Nairobi, Kenya. The scene was horrific and chaotic, a mix of confused victims and Kenyans eager to help, but limited on how. The bombings left more than 220 dead and more than 5,000 wounded. The vast majority of the casualties were in Kenya, where 12 Americans were killed. From Brazil to Botswana, from France to the Philippines, from South Korea to their final post, Kenya. The attacks were a precursor to other al-Qaeda assaults on American targets, like the suicide bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen in 2000. Eyewitnesses say two men aboard the small boat suddenly snapped to attention as if following orders, then the blast, an enormous explosion that tears a huge gash in the side of the ship. And then a year later, 9-11. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. And while the events of September 11th are rightfully seared into every American's memory, much less has been documented or remembered about August 7th, 1998, including the fact that U.S. Ambassador to Kenya, Prudence Bushnell, had warned Washington about threats to her embassy. Ambassador Bushnell had been waiting for someone to write the full story of what happened in Africa. After two decades, she decided to do it herself. Her new book is called Terrorism, Betrayal, and Resilience, my story of the 1998 U.S. Embassy bombings. She's here with us now. Ambassador Bushnell, thank you so much for coming into the studio. You're welcome. So we're actually going to start in August 1998. You had been ambassador at that point two full years. Correct. You had noted that there were security concerns about that embassy. Where was the embassy in Nairobi? Can you set the scene for us and and why the embassy itself seemed a concern? The embassy was located on one of the busiest downtown corners of Nairobi across the street from the local railroad station. So we had thousands of commuters passing by and it had no setback. After our embassy in Beirut was blown up by a truck bomb in 1983, the Department of State made it mandatory that all diplomatic facilities have a 100-foot setback. We have those in Washington now Mm -hmm. as a result of the Oklahoma City bombing. Because the policymakers in Congress and in the executive branch had decided to underfund the Department of State for years, the state's own security regulations were waived in order to stay within budgets. Before I arrived in Nairobi, I had spent three years as Deputy Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, Mm -hmm. and one of my portfolios was conflict. 
the resolution thereof, not mm-hmm. the creation thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went around African countries talking to murdering warlords. I participated from the Washington and on an, any number of evacuations, and a colleague called me the disaster das. <laughs> so I knew disasters in Africa. I knew buildings that were vulnerable when I saw them, and it took me literally a nanosecond to know this was a dangerous building. And from within two weeks of being in Nairobi, I began to send cables back saying, please don't put any more money into renovating this building because it's on a dangerous location. Let's put the money in a pool, sell the building, and move to another location. And I was told that train had left the station and... um, and worse, right? I mean, oh in your gosh. book, you write that they said you were nag. That's you... right. Over the years, mm-hmm. as over the two years, as political violence increased mm-hmm. downtown, as we got closer to the 1997 presidential elections mm-hmm. in Kenya, crime increased. We also had in 97 and particularly um, concerns about local terrorist groups. I knew there was an al-Qaeda cell in Nairobi, although I had no idea that it was a military cell. And you even had a walk-in who and warned we of had truck a walk-in. bombs. Yes. What, can you tell me what happened there? A walk-in is literally that. Somebody who comes into an embassy and says, I have information for you. This man walked in from the street and said, you are in danger of being bombed. A truck bomb will be involved, and so will stun grenades. I was, ironically, in Washington at the time, Mm -hmm. being lectured to by one of my colleagues who told me to stop nagging, that people in high places were getting really tired of my cables, and I should knock it off. I come back to Nairobi. I find out that we have had a walk-in. I'm told that his name was circulated around various intelligence agencies and that he was a fabricator, but I nevertheless sent what we in the trade called a nasty gram, Mm -hmm. um, a telegram of anger, on the 24th of December, 1997. And the reason I chose that date is because I knew State would not be getting very many cables on Christmas Day, and they can jolly well read mine saying, hello, I got back. We had a walk-in. This is still a dangerous place. Would you please focus your attention this way? And three months later, I was gently reprimanded in my annual performance review for overloading the circuits. And that's what compelled me to write a letter to the Secretary of State, um, which was hand-delivered. Now we're at August 7th, 1998. Yes. Where are you that morning? I was in, not in staff meeting, where I should have been, because as you know, everybody loves weekly staff meetings. I missed it because two colleagues from the Commerce Department and I were across the small parking lot from the embassy meeting with the Kenyan Ministry of Commerce um, minister. What time Talking was it? about the impending visit of Secretary of Commerce Daly. That was, gosh, we walked over, I don't know, I think the meeting was for 10.30. The meeting started with the requisite photo op and cup of tea. The tea had been served. The journalists had left. We were settling down to business when we heard a boom 
as in a construction boom, Mm -hmm. which is what I thought it was, and asked the minister, is there any construction going on? No, I don't think so. Most of the people in the room got up and walked to the window. I have no idea why I was the last one up and had only taken a few steps when this freight train of percussion came with an enormous boom and threw me back. Shadowy figures went by. The teacup began to rattle, and I thought, I'm going to die. And I tell you, it was an impression that will never leave me because on the one hand, must have been endorphins flooding my brain because I was thinking dreamily, I'm going to die because I was on the 22nd floor of a building that was shaking. At the same time, every cell in my body was in utter panic. Were the windows intact? Had they blown in? The windows had all blown in. The windows had blown in. Um, buildings for a mile around. And most of the 5,000 people who were wounded were wounded because they went toward the windows and the windows became missiles. Because of the shattering glass. glass. How long were you down against the wall before you got up and tried to get out? I think it was just a few minutes. Time literally stopped. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done a fair amount of reading about what happens to the brain when a human brain is faced with death and trauma. So the fact that time almost stopped wasn't unusual. I suspect it may have been two minutes before one of my colleagues came rushing back into the room saying, Ambassador, we've got to get out of here. And he and I went down... Um, Were you bleeding? Were you injured? I had superficial injuries. Um, I knew that my lip was badly bleeding, um, and I had injuries about my face, but I wasn't at all aware of them. And as we walked down flights of stairs, packed together with all of the other people in the building Mm -hmm. trying to get out, um, people were literally bleeding all over each other, and I didn't know of the blood that was on me, which was mine or which came from people on the stairs with me. Was it chaos? It wasn't. It was contrary to all of the disaster movies you see. It was quiet. As we went further and further down the stairs, more and more people came out. Um, I heard uh, a man calling Karibu, which is welcome in Kiswahili as we went down. A woman was singing a hymn. Another woman was praying. I do not remember panic until we got close to the bottom and somebody and suddenly we came to a standstill and somebody yelled fire. Oh, God. Um, Smoke was coming. And again, I thought, I'm going to die. But at least I'm going to die of asphyxiation. Not, I mean, the horror of being burned to death was, um, as it turned out, obviously I didn't. And what What did you see when you got to the street? I saw military people holding back on the other side of the street, thousands of onlookers. In the middle of the street, I first saw nothing but the pavement because my colleague said, Ambassador, there's press, and he literally put my head down. So uh, the first few steps I took outside of the building, concrete 
uh, shards of concrete, twisted metal, glass, lots of glass, and then I saw the charred remains of what was once a human being, and my head snapped up, and I then saw hell, um, a large rubble of what was once a seven-story office building that had pancaked with people frantically uh, searching for those who had survived. So the sight of figures in the distance throwing rubble out and calling for names. I saw the vehicles in that small parking lot popping, exploding, hence the smoke that came into the building. And I saw the um, what was left of the back of our embassy, which was built to earthquake standards. So it actually looked pretty good, whereas the inside was total devastation. I didn't see the inside because as we came around the corner, people saw me and started my my security colleagues, there she is, move, move, because they were terrified that the terrorists were going to shoot people. And as the ambassador, I was a prime suspect, so they threw me and my colleague into a vehicle. Was it immediately clear it was terrorism? Yes. The reason it was immediately clear it was terrorism was because we had people who saw the truck with a 1,000 pounds of TNT in it Mm -hmm. come in. One of the perps got out of the truck and threw the stun grenade at our contract security guard who immediately began to run toward the front of the building, alerting our Marine guards of an attack. Meanwhile, we had had months before... um, we had had family members in our community who were very concerned about the location of the embassy because that's where the medical unit was. And we were bringing, of course, families, children down to for doctor's appointments and so forth. And one of the people had suggested that we move it, the medical unit, to another place in Nairobi. I put it to a community vote. The community decided to keep it in the embassy. That woman was in the embassy with her children. She walked past the truckload of explosives and was in the medical unit when it was detonated. So there was no doubt that it was a terrorist attack. And when you say medical unit, you mean a small hospital for embassy staff and employees? Yes, it's a small doctor's office. Yes, for American employees, where we get our shots and our, you know, when we get sick, it's um, our HMO. So where did you go? What did you do next? You know, it's odd how one thinks in times of crises. I happen to be very calm. I did not want to go to the hospital, to the emergency room, because I could tell what the damage downtown, and I knew the emergency rooms would be over. I mean, had you were you seeing walking wounded everywhere you went? As everywhere, you, everywhere. Yes. Were there screams in the air? I mean, what, no, what did it sound like? No, but but you know, I think it must have taken me and my colleagues about forty-five minutes to get out of that building. Oh. Again, I wasn't looking at the time. Um, it seemed to take forever, but by, things were pretty calm in that. 
the initial onslaught of thousands of people into that area had been taken care of. So people were crowding, but at a distance from across the street. Um, but I could tell, actually, by the looks of my two colleagues, both of whom had gone toward the window and sustained head injuries, and they were profusely bleeding as one does when you get a skull injury. Um, I could tell by the uh, we our medical unit was doing triage on the sidewalk right outside of the embassy, and I could tell they were doing triage. So I absorbed enough to know that this was a disaster. And I thought about the uh, five-star hotels, which often have doctors on staff. Mm -hmm. And so I I said, you know, is there a five-star hotel? And the colleague who walked down with me was in Nairobi only temporarily and was staying at the Serena Hotel and said, I've got a room, let's go. So we, we pull up to the hotel. You're two men dripping with blood. I mean, just pouring out of their wounds. Just imagine a lobby full of tourists um, happily in their cameras waiting to go on a safari um, and in scuttle three people with blood pouring down them, um, hurrying to the elevator. Who were the two men with you? They were my colleagues from the Department of Commerce. So you go upstairs to his room in the five-star hotel. We go upstairs to his room in a five-star hotel, and we call downstairs, and we find not just a doctor but a nurse. The doctor comes up. He takes one look at my companions and says, we've got to get an ambulance. You need to be in the hospital immediately. He looks at me and says, you can wait. The nurse began to help, as did my colleague's wife, who was in the hotel room, um, had begun to help me wash up to determine the difference between uh, that was which was my blood and that which was other people's blood. And as I waited for the doctor to come back, I was listening over the radio net. This is pre-cell phone days. And we all had these ugly, they were called lunchboxes, <laughs> um, handheld radios. And I could hear from the, the desperate chatter for help that we had a huge catastrophe on our hands. And I was trying to understand the scope of it as I waited for the doctor to come back. And in the meanwhile... I knew exactly what we needed to do because of that experience having been disaster das mm -hmm. on the other end of disasters in Washington. I knew how we needed to set up a crisis control group. I knew the kind of information we needed to get, and I was setting up a mental to-do list until the doctor came back. And I, you know, I, I think now, why in the world didn't I just go back to the... I happen to be a woman of huge common sense. I wanted to be cleared for duty. I did not want to be a burden, right? I'm the ambassador. I need to come as though I'm in control. What does it mean to be cleared for duty? Can you explain what that means? 
that I'm not in shock, Mm -hmm. that I don't have anything so wrong with me that I'm going to Mm -hmm. collapse or require medical attention, Mm -hmm. essentially. And he said, you know, the worst thing is your split lip. Um, You're going to have to get it stitched up, but you don't have to get it stitched up immediately. Mm -hmm. Boom. That's medical clearance. I can go about my business. Um, And in fact, did wait to get my lip stitched later. And what was your to-do list? Find our people. That is the first order of business. And we had taken refuge. Everybody who had been in the building that had blown up had now moved to a building in the suburbs, which Agency for International Development had been leasing. And we had set up a crisis control room there. I went, um, really the adrenaline was coursing through as I leapt up the stairs to the crisis control room. There were two colleagues from the British Embassy behind me. I went in. I saw my office manager who had been, she and I had been professionally together for years. She had no idea I was alive. I had no idea she was alive. We threw each other into each other's arms, and I said, where's the steno? (laughs) Where's the steno pad? First thing I did was to grab the telephone directory, the Mm -hmm. embassy telephone directory, and handed it to I don't know who and said, get teams and find all of our people. Ordinary office workers formed teams and went through morgues and hospitals. How many office staff had there been? How many people were working at the embassy? We, in the embassy building, we probably had about 120. We suffered 46 people injured and many more wounded. So we suffered um, over 50% casualties. And the people who went into the morgues and the hospitals were people who had been working in our AID building in the suburbs and therefore were, were physically uninjured. But I can tell you, as they spent days finding their colleagues Kenyan colleagues in particular, we lost 12 Americans and 34 Kenyans. Can you imagine going and looking for your colleagues here in morgues, um, in hospitals, and then while others set up a communication line to take the frantic phone calls of people who did not know the whereabouts of their loved ones with instructions that if we knew this person was dead, we would ask the family member to come in. So imagine you're sitting at your job as you are right now, and boom, you end up um, being part of the morgue search team or being a crisis counselor, having to tell people their loved ones are dead, and we're doing it all alone in a city that has none of the resources we take for granted here. When do you hear from the president? Ah. So it it must have been a couple of hours after the bombing. Somebody came and said, Ambassador, the president is on the line for you. And I must have waited, I don't know, three or four minutes thinking, (coughs) hurry up, would you please hurry up? I have things to do here. And he came on the line and he said, hello, Prue, how are you? And I had a vision of a colleague with a three-by-five card in front of him saying she calls herself Prue because I had (laughs) never met the man. And how did he know I didn't call myself Prudence? He said, Prue, how are you? And I had made up what I said. 
I said, Mr. President, I am bursting with sadness at what has happened and bursting with pride at how our people are taking care of it. And he said, well, secure the perimeter. I thought, what? I may even have said that. I, and I, I, I secured the perimeter. Yes, secure the perimeter and hold the line. I understand that the building next door has collapsed. Secure that perimeter too. <laughs> I don't know what I said. Um, I know what I was thinking. What were you thinking? Well, this is really helpful. And why in the world are we sending back information if nobody is doing anything about it? Don't they know that we have suffered 50 percent casualties within the instant of the detonation, within a second? A total of 213 people died, 46 of whom were in the U.S. Embassy. We suffered casualties of 34 dead Kenyans and 12 dead Americans. In addition, because the stun grenade had brought so many people in that area, that busy downtown area, to the windows, um, and because the detonation took place within a confined small parking lot, the energy was even more exaggerated, and most of the windows were blown out, became missiles, and injured up to 5,000 people from the chest up. So you don't get a message of condolence from President Clinton? No. Contextually, two realities made it very difficult. Number one, we were blown up in the month of August Mm -hmm. when everybody in Washington is on vacation. And the Congress is out of session. Number two, this was the point at which the president's sex scandal was coming to a great crescendo. Ken Starr was coming out with his report. The president had been quoted as saying, I did not have sex with that woman, and that was found to be an obfuscation. And The media was titillated. We had a few minutes of considerable media attention, and then it went away. The fact that news, somebody leaked that I had written to the Secretary of State before the bombing made it embarrassing for the administration. And I think people just wanted to get back to normal as soon as possible. How quickly did you have a sense of who the perpetrators might be? We did not know for months. The guardians of the Islamic places or or something like that proved to be al-Qaeda took responsibility within hours of the bombing. But I didn't know who they were, and nobody was giving me information. Were you immediately conscious that this was a sort of manifestation of the security concerns you had been alerting them about? Did oh, you- yes. Oh, yes. The first, uh, the president's call was only the second, third call I received. The first call I received was from Susan Rice, who was the new assistant secretary of state for African affairs. I knew Susan very well. And she was utterly dismayed. She said, Prue, what, you know, what happened? I had no idea you were so close to the street. 
And I said, Susan, I wrote the mm, Secretary of State a letter. And literally at that moment, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, Ambassador, the Secretary of State's on the line. I went on the line, Madam Secretary. She said, Prue, I had no idea that your building was so close to the street. I said, Madam Secretary, I sent you a letter, and there was a career-crushing silence. And she said, I never got it. In point of fact, she did receive it, but I do not begrudge her having forgotten because she's Secretary of State how many letters come across her desk. Why do you think people were so dismissive of your security concerns and using words like nagging? I think because there was nothing they could do about it, and they were trying to do things right. They were trying to keep their jobs um, to be, you know, what a good boy am I by keeping within the budget, and they had contempt for me. Why? I think part because I was a woman. I, I Actually, I still am. <laughs> um, and I have to tell you, I have spent so much time um, on the fruitless question of would it have made a difference, would my gender have made a difference? Mm-hmm. I don't think that I would have persuaded my colleagues to relocate the embassy had I been male. Mm-hmm. I do think that my gender made a huge difference in the attitude Mm -hmm. not only they took, but the media took. Imagine my surprise and consternation when, in the month of January, a few months after the bombing, when we are still unaware of who the perpetrators are and how this could have happened and are desperately trying to bring ourselves back to a semblance of normal, reading a New York Times article that talked about how I was considered to be obsessed and, end quote, that I had written a highly emotional letter. So the assumption was that as a persistent leader doing the right thing by demanding attention to an insecure building, I was an obsessed woman. And instead of a courageous leader going Mm -hmm. beyond the chain of command to make her point, Mm -hmm. I was writing a highly emotional letter. Had they paid attention to it, do you think lives would have been saved? Or is that something that haunts you? It's not simply a matter of paying attention to the letter. What I spent years uncovering after I retired from the service was the amount of information that the FBI held, the CIA held, the National Security Council held that was neither shared among themselves nor shared with me and Kenyan intelligence. Had that information been shared, I don't think we would have been blown up and I don't think 9-11 would have happened. Did location matter, the fact that your security concerns were being raised about Nairobi as opposed to a city that was maybe higher on their radar? Yes, location always counts. And people in Washington considered Africa to be at the bottom end of President Clinton's portfolio. Um, There was no interest in Africa, and I think that the people around the table in Washington, D.C., the counterterrorism groups who were looking at al-Qaeda, assumed that because in Washington 
nobody was interested in Africa. Al-Qaeda wouldn't be interested in, in Africa. I do know that at least once a warning had been sent out about a possible terrorist attack to countries in the Middle East, but not to countries in Africa. Hmm. They knew that they, the counterterrorism community suspected that one of our embassies was going to be hit by Al-Qaeda. They must have if they kept listening in on telephone conversations and never dawned on them that it could have been in Africa. How was it to go back to working for the embassy, with the embassy, as ambassador in the weeks and months that followed the attack? It was difficult and it was inconceivable that I would do anything else. How much longer did you serve as ambassador? Ten months. And were you traumatized? Were the people around you traumatized? Did you oh bring gosh, in trauma yes. counselors? Oh, my gosh, yes. We had, and, you know, the Foreign Service doesn't believe in post-traumatic stress. We can, well, better than that, we suck it up. We did have a State Department psychiatrist who came in who debriefed us a week to 10 days after um, and asked us in groups, where were you when the bomb went off? What did you do? And how do you feel now? Debriefings like that in the psychiatric community have become controversial. I actually found them very helpful. But other than that, we offered counseling. Most people at, in the Foreign Service did not take it because we are very concerned about our security clearances. And if you see a, somebody for mental health reasons, that goes on your security clearance form. How was it to go back to testify in the United States, what was it like to testify? It was the most surreal and horrible experience. The man who had hurled the stun grenade and then decided he didn't want to die was there picking his teeth throughout my testimony and picking his teeth when um, I sat looking at him. I was very grateful when the judge came back and dismissed me. Throughout the trial, I was on an even keel. I was holding myself. I mean, it was a difficult experience, but I I can do this. I'm an ambassador. We get to the airport, and there was something was wrong. I don't know. There was some paper problem, and I had a meltdown in front of the the um, United airplane counter, and ended up huddling by a, a pillar, sobbing. A person can only hold tension for so long. And so nine months later, 9-11 happens. Yeah. I was having breakfast when the phone rang, and it was our regional security officer who said, Ambassador, turn on the TV. The bastards are doing it to us again. Ambassador Bushnell, do you feel the 1998 bombings in Nairobi are remembered? No. Why not? Because we turned the page of history so quickly, because it was an embarrassment, because this was the point at which the president's sex scandal was coming to a great crescendo. Ken Starr was coming out with his report. We had a few minutes of considerable media attention, and then it went away. The fact that News, somebody leaked that I had written to the Secretary of State before the bombing, made it embarrassing for the administration. And I think people just wanted to get back to normal as soon as possible. 
no after-action review was ever conducted. Not a single congressional hearing was ever held. Aside from a very narrow accountability review board that came to Nairobi with me in their sights, blaming me for small security lapses, um, no one ever asked anybody in Washington, how could this have happened? So we turned the page, including the media, and on we went. We had become a footnote in the texts and research about 9-11, but also that when I looked at how the media began to portray me, I was the ultimate damsel in distress. The only thing the media ever wanted to hear from me was how I was injured, what the experience was coming out of the building. And when I see clips as in the looming tower that was done, I'm a damsel in distress, and I wasn't. Oh, no. Uh -uh. I was a wounded leader who took up her role with the mantle of her team with her and did what needed to be done. And I wanted to correct the record. I could not not do it any more than I could not stand up after we were blown up. Ambassador Bushnell, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this experience and your new book, Terrorism, Betrayal, and Resilience, and talking about that resilience. You're welcome. Ambassador Prudence Bushnell's new book is Terrorism, Betrayal, and Resilience, My Story of the 1998 U.S. Embassy Bombings. The ER is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. 